Shalom Yehudim, Shalom Lebenei Noach, Shalom Legoyim. It's the evening of the fourth day. Erev Hebe'iyar, Erev Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Parashas Acharei Mos Gedoshim, Tavshin Pei Gimel 5783. The evening of the third day, Tuesday, 25 April 2023. You're listening to Phantom Nations, the second in the latest series of six podcasts sponsored by Floridians for Israel Institute at gmail.com on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Coming to you for Israel on the evening of Israel's Independence Day. Following Israel's official Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaZikaron, remembering, remembering the fallen IDF soldiers and the fallen to Acts of Enmity Day. Last year, 59 Israelis in uniform were killed by Muslims, though, of course, Israelis don't see them that way. They see them as Palestinian terrorists. And never mind those who killed them are neither Palestinian, nor are they really devotees and uh, moved by terrorism. Which sounds like just another ideology, but it's not an ideology. Uh, No group actually, uh, not even the Muslims, is interested in running a society of terror. I mean, socialists want to live in a socialist society. Anarchists want to live in an anarchistic society. But no one wants to live in a terrorist society. Creating terror for terror's sake? What? That's not what these Muslims are all about. They do what they do for religious reasons. They must destroy the state of Israel because the Jews are not allowed to live free of Muslim oppression and humiliation. And why is that? Well, because uh, the Jews know deep down that Islam is the correct religion of Ibrahim. And because they are stiff-necked Jews, they refuse to admit that and convert to the one true faith, to Islam. Which is why Islam penalizes them by demanding a yearly tribute, the Jezia tax, for the right to continue believing as Jews and not convert. Secondly, uh, before this horde of wild asses of men became Muslim, they were polytheistic, nature-worshipping primitives whose whose principal occupation, uh, livelihood, was consciousness armed robbery. Preying upon people in transit, you know, highway robbers when people at their are at their most defenseless, and constantly uh, with the other nomads, they attacked the other nomadic tribesmen in the knowledge that after a raid, their victim would mount a counter-raid to take back what was stolen. In a word, they adopted monotheism, but then used it to justify their innate character, which is that of thieves. The famous Midrash in Sifri teaches that they are thieves, as did Rashi in the 11th century, Ishmael, was expelled from this country, and he went to live in the desert of Paran, the Torah teaches. He did not go to live in a settled, civilized, and citifying community. And no man does not work and develop the land. He is no farmer. He is, in Rashi's word, Elistim, an armed robber. Now, the Bnei Yisrael, the sons of Israel, became literate with the gift of the five books, truly a divine object, and lived according to its laws for 2,000 years uh, as the sons of Ishmael in the same period remained illiterate nomads. Uh, their first book uh, is the Quran in the 7th century uh, of our time, uh, which is heavily a plagiarized version of the five books. By my count, there are at least two dozen Jews who we meet in the five books whose stories are retold in the Quran with errors twists, distortions, and of course, Muslims claim theirs is the original text given to Musa on Mount Sinai that the Jews rewrote. 
Musa was given the Quran at Mount Sinai, which the evil Jews took away from him and rewrote, so their Torah is wrong, it's false. It was Muhammad who restored the original text 2,000 years later. Uh, Ibrahim, they say, offered up his firstborn son Ismail as a sacrifice, and he did that in Mecca. And when Al-Yehud says the son was the Ishak, uh, the Jews are lying. So it's a mistake to call these murderers of Jews in uniform or those just going about their innocent civilian lives, calling the murderers the terrorists. They're not interested in creating terror. That is a byproduct uh, for those on the scene when they commit their atrocities. Uh, their principal goal is to murder Jews and be slain in the process. These antediluvian barbarians glory in and gloat. They will win because they love death and Al-Yahud loves life. Which should not overly surprise us since the mother of the Arabs was an Egyptian, Princess Hagar, whose people's most memorable contribution to mankind was building the greatest tombs in history, and no less by slave labor, the merciless abuse of fellow human beings as beasts of burden. In Egypt to this very day, Tourism is a major income earner, and what is tourism there but visiting the pyramids built by the Hamitic, not Semitic, Egyptians, one of whose religious texts is called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The Egyptians were obsessed with death, and uh, they are were, were the spiritual forebears of today's homicidal, suicidal Muslimaniacs, like the latest one, uh, engaged in a religious act of self-sacrifice, just yesterday, in the middle of Jerusalem, in Machana Yehuda, uh, uh, that's the open market in Jerusalem, and there's something original that happened yesterday. It's kind of ordinary, actually. A Muslim in a vehicle deliberately sped up into a cluster of al-Yehud, five seriously injured, one old man, age 80, on the cusp of death, uh, witnesses in shock, uh, with yet another uh, armed Israeli passing by who took action and dispatched the Muslim maniac to Muslim paradise. He is another Israeli hero whose name cannot be published. And why? Because the relatives of the Arab he shot dead will then come looking for him, to kill him. This, by the way, is, is a known fear in Belsheva, where Israeli judges of Bedouin criminals take into account uh, that uh, handing out a severe punishment could endanger himself and his family. This is with whom we are dealing said before the day's official description, title is A Day of Remembrance of IDF Fallen Soldiers and Those Fallen to Acts of Enmity, which I think is evidence of the inability of official Israel to face the truth. That secular Zionism produced a state, thank God, a home today for a good life among millions of Jews, uh, but its birth did not lead uh, to what was also hoped, which was the end of anti-Semitism. The founders uh, wanted that to be a result of having our own state. Uh, the word anti-Semitism only entered the human mind in the late 19th century. It's a mistake to call anti-Semitism the oldest hatred because the word was not invented until then. The historical record does not lack for a monstrous Jew hatred in every generation, but it was never labeled anti-Semitism until the 1870s which uh, word then went on to become, or that decade, a hothouse of modern anti-Semitic anti lunacy, 
Uh, it was in this period, there was all kind of crackpot writing about Jews from a racist, ethnological point of view. Anti-Semitism became the talk of the town in that decade. Uh, and it was called, certainly in Austria and in Germany, uh, the, the Judenfrage, the Jewish question, uh, referring to the fact that the Jews had become citizens in European countries after the Napoleonic Wars. But since then, they had assimilated and infiltrated human, European society, and many were unhappy with that. This was the Judenfrage, the Jewish question. That's what it was all about, what to do with the Jews that nobody wants. Well... In the 1870s, there was this evil flowering of all kinds of theories about Jews and why people hated them and what to do with them. Europe's chattering classes um, suffered a serious drop in the number of believing Christians in that century. In mid-century, Karl Marx uh, baptized a Christian, bashed all religion. Darwin was disproving the Bible. Friedrich Nietzsche in that period said God is dead. But these people, having jettisoned the Bible... These post-Christians inadvertently could no longer hate Jews for being Christ-killers. So they had to come up with another explanation and reason. And reason. Uh, and they said, yeah, the, the Jews are Semites. That's the problem. They are another race from Asia. Uh, and their culture is as different from European culture as black African culture. People are uncomfortable in their presence because they are of another race and so on and so forth. Anti-Semitism was no longer about religion, but anthropology. The Jews were no longer a nation scattered to the four wings of the world for their cosmic murder of God. They were now a race, which is a biological condition. Read 19th century literature, and the Jews are repeatedly called the Jewish race, when the Jews are all races, who lived all over the world and accepted converts. There's arguably no nation on earth as racially mixed as this one, so I wish official Israel would reconsider the title of this day and delete the fallen to acts of enmity. It's just too nonspecific. And in its place, use acts of lunatic Jew hatred.
And that was Yehuda Glantz doing Yibaneah Bigdash, May the Temple Be Built. So, uh, yesterday, some uh, 15,000 presumably Jewish Israelis gathered in a Tel Aviv park with some 150 enemy Muslims from Judea and Samaria, uh, disguised as Palestinians, of course, who came to mourn together the uh, fallen on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, this uh, a spectacle has been going on now for like 17 years. These are Israelis who I think, charitably, are, are, were traumatized or are traumatized by the chronic, uh, like a chronic backache or headache, uh, traumatized by the fear of being murdered by these Muslim Arabs, uh, which they deal with by being nice to them, entering a fantasy of uh, a non-homicidal friendship with the enemy, uh, because at bottom we're all the same, aren't we? I also imagine that these 15,000 are likely among the same flag-waving disruptors of recent weeks and also march in every Tel Aviv gay pride parade. Uh, these are people who, if so, are sexually confused and or disoriented and likely are confused about the difference between an aggressor and his victim. The violence here against Israel by Muslims in these parts predates by decades the invention in 1959 by Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, he was the pharaonic dictator in Egypt at the time. He invented Al-Qiyan al-Filistini in uh, Arabic, meaning the Palestinian entity. See, in mandatory Palestine in the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the whole world, including all Arabs and Muslims, uh, referred to those who ran from the fighting here in Israel's War of Independence, the Arab refugees. They were called, believe it or not, the Arab refugees by everybody. No one called them Palestinians, and they could not because so many were migrant laborers from all over the Middle East with nothing Palestinian about them. They ran because they were migrant laborers with no immovable property to worry about. They fled in the expectation that the Arab armies would kill all the Jews in a few days, and then they could return to where they ran from to loot all the wealth the Jews had created. And in those decades until the 1950s, the end of the 1950s, there were no Palestinians as a party to the war against Israel, which from day one was not ever about stealing Palestine from the Palestinians, but denying the Jews their independence in their own Jewish majority state that they had built, which had not existed before the Zionist movement. At work among the Arabs at that time was their ancient character of being hungry for the property of others. The Palestine Mandate <clears throat> led to overseas investment by the Jewish people and job opportunities for cheap labor, so they came from all over the Middle East. And anyone can see evidence of this by walking through Jerusalem's post-67 restored Jewish quarter toward it's the route to the Western Wall through the quarter, and then one must descend some steps to reach the level of the wall. And as you do, you're facing Mount Olives, and southward of Mount Olives, uh, there, are the, there are these Arab houses, cheek by jowl, thrown together, no urban planning. Uh, these shambles of homes with, with crummy streets, uh, none of which uh, were built before the Zionist movement. Uh, the Zionist movement began building west of the Turkish walls. When the Arab migrant laborers came in, they settled on, they camped on the east side. 
You can see this um, situation in the cover of my book, Edward Lear's 1859 painting of Jerusalem as, a, as seen from Mount Scopus. Today's Arab East Jerusalem, what you're looking at when you go down those steps, is simply not there. Indeed, not until the administration of uh, perfidious Albion in the 1920s did the Brits invent a Muslim quarter to Jerusalem that never existed. The largest quarter in Turkish centuries, four of them, was the Jewish quarter. Two-thirds of the people in Jerusalem were Jews. There was an Armenian quarter and a Christian quarter, Protestants and others, uh, but no Muslim quarter because it was just more Arab-Muslim thievery when they claim Jerusalem is their third holiest city. They just, that's an excuse. But if this is their third holiest city, why did they administer it as a dirty, disease-ridden, rat-infested slum? The record is empty, historically speaking, of any Muslim period in which Jerusalem was thriving, people uh, populated by enthusiastic devotees of Islam in their allegedly third holiest city. Jerusalem was never a capital of an independent Muslim state, polity. It was never anything in Jerusalem except a trophy of war, taking it away from the Jews. That's all that matters. Almost from day one of Islam, the Jewish community has been oppressed and humiliated, a daily act of fact of life, which never had anything to do with the absence of a state for the Palestinians. This is nothing, uh, the Palestinian national movement, nothing but the greatest and most successful psychological warfare campaign in history. Auschwitz was liberated in January of 1945. The UN came into being 10 months later in October of 45. And among its, one of its first tasks was to confront the hundreds of thousands of Jewish DPs, displaced persons in DP camps, with no homes to go to. The Zionists wanted them to come to Palestine, and many of them wanted to go there too. But the Arabs resisted, uh, with not one word about Palestine, whose very existence they denied. Hajimin's position from day one was that there was no such country, and he was absolutely right, not in Muslim history. Over 14 centuries had there ever been such a place called Philistine, with known boundaries. But then along came, starting in 1959, the historical fantasy of there having been a Palestinian nation living in Palestine, whose country was stolen from by the Jews, and the rest is history. Which Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews are incapable of taking on attacking and defeating this greatest, most successful psychological warfare campaign in history, which has succeeded in casting doubt into the hearts of too many Jews in Israel and abroad about the justice of the very existence of the world's one and only Jewish state. That is, Israelis, not only on the left, but through the middle and even into the right somewhat. There is a sense that you know the Palestinians have to be respected. They have a sense of injustice and abuse, conquest, occupation. Ergo, at its extreme, the irrationality among 15,000 Jews here the other night, <clears throat> who cannot see the enemy as the enemy, but brothers in suffering. I think there's some connection between those who uh, celebrate sexual deviance, uh, really denying there is such a thing as deviance, because that's a negative judgment in such types. Of, I think there's nothing negative about the behavior. Uh, there's a connection, I believe, though, between the lack of clarity in that regard and sitting in friendly commiseration with the enemy, whom these people deny are our enemy. 
They deny the enemy's cultural religious life in which Jew hatred and Jew hating is so central and even glorified. In uh, World War II, as my book records, these Arabs were in general on Hitler's side. Then, but immediately after the war, they began seeding the world with the lie that they had nothing to do with the Holocaust, nothing to do with the war. When my book makes clear, this is another one of their lies. And it's not only among these 15,000 confused pe people here, this mindset. Um, uh, before this disgusting gathering, Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant said in light of the shaky security situation, he would not permit Palestinians into Israel to attend the ceremony. As reported here, Attorney General Gali Baharav Miara expressed her displeasure with Gallant's decision, but since it was not binding, uh, she or some went off to the high court, paid the fee if they had to, to ask the high court to overrule Gallant's decision. And that's exactly what happened. On Sunday, the court ordered the Minister of Defense not to prevent these Palestinians from exercising their belief in the moral equivalence of Jews murdered by Palestinians and Palestinians killed by our security forces, of course. Those are my words. The High Court, of course, sided with the petitioners, citing identical cases, I think, in 2017 and 18. In other words, uh, this was not the first time anti-Jews had gotten the High Court to dictate to an Israeli Minister of Defense what he may or may not do. The uh, Koholet think tank responded with a bullseye, dipped arrows dipped in acid. Their statement said, quote, In Israel, the Attorney General decides what the state's position is. She decided that entry to, must be allowed. This is how our theater of the absurd operates. A hearing in a court in the presence of only one side is enough. And people wonder why we need judicial reform.
And that was coming to all and Hilik Frank. And you're listening to the program program on phantomnation.com. Well, uh, given the day, um, another couple of attempted Jew killings, I think, uh, and the political scene, so to speak, on hold, and this uh, licenses me, I think, to go a little far afield from my usual commentary uh, um, and deal with the world punditry these days, or now, today, seized with the firing by Rupert Murdoch of his television channel's number one attraction, Tucker Carlson, whose program I follow, even if it is broadcast at three in the morning or again at eight in the morning. I think uh, Carlson has been terrific. Though, in all honesty, I suspect he is an anti-Jew or a bit of an anti-Chew, which in our time um, is no longer uh, respecting the old style being an anti-Jew. Today, it's being anti-Israel. Carlson is an Episcopalian, and they're right up there with the Presbyterians as a legacy church, mainstream church that sneers at Israel. But to his credit... Uh, if I'm right, he keeps his anti-Jew inclinations in check. He never touches on Israel, and if so, that's a good thing. Uh, he is, though, is a big fan of Tulsi Gabbard, who is also suspect in my eyes as an anti-Jewess. Back in 2014, during a major IDF operation against the barbarians in Gaza, she uh, sermonized to Israel that it was using the wrong ammunition, or shouldn't use ammunition at all live rounds, words to that effect, implying... Jewish callousness, cruelty to the ancient ones. Uh, she also uh, separately had a spate of siding up to Bashar Assad in Syria and defending his use of poison gas and barrel bombs on his own, op own people. And as part of the uh, scuttlebutt surrounding Carlson's firing, one angle also has to do with a lawsuit by a fired producer named Amy Grossman who claims she was bullied and subjected to anti-Semitic comments while working on Carlson's show with his staff, which sounds like further confirmation of suspicions about him. For sure, Carlson repeatedly sneers at the neocons, though I'm not sure he knows the origin of the term, as he might, and its connection to anti-Semitism. Carlson was born in 1970, when already by 1968 there was a growing kernel of uh, former lefties among the intellectuals in the States who were turning away from the left, triggered by their excesses uh, in the matter of the anti-war uh, movement. Uh, these people also opposed the war, but recoiled from the hyperbolic smearing of the U.S. as a terrible country, fascist Nazis, America with a KKK. Among the first uh, in this regard was Irving Kristol, uh, erstwhile Trotskyite devotee when in college at CCNY in New York City in the 1930s. In that period, he began republishing articles in, believe it or not, the Wall Street Journal uh, in favor of, you know, uh, capitalism and liberal democracy. Also in this community, uh, uh, people who were changing were William Bennett, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, who was appointed ambassadress to the UN. Also, Norman Potharitz, editor of Commentary Magazine. They all began to turn from the left toward the conservative side, uh, thus a group of new conservatives, formerly of the left, began to appear, neoconservatives, neocons for short, who did not belong to the uh, club of paleoconservatives, so to speak, 
long associated with the waspy Christian, anti-Jew Christian right. Uh, now, because so many of these intellectuals were Jews, uh, turning into hardcore American patriots, they were suspected by the paleoconservatives of being that only because they cared for Israel. Dual loyalty, you know. Thus, over time, disparaging the neocons became a comfortable position for anti-Jews to hide behind because of the neocons' aggressive foreign policy prescriptions, which included their energetic support for Israel. For example, uh, Pat Buchanan, uh, who was educated in the Roman Catholic Church before Vatican II, uh, a shameless anti-Israelite, he said the only reason George Bush 41 went into Iraq was to pre was thanks to pressure inside the Beltway from, quote, Israel's Amen Corner. In this, he was sort of like an intellectual cousin of Ilhan Omar, saying the Jews buy off politicians with the Benjamins, with money. So it will be interesting to see if Amy Grossman has a story like Barry Weiss at the New York Times, who suffered outright anti-Semitism and quit. Again, I will not be surprised if Tucker Carlson tolerated that kind of ugliness in his staff, which does not change my position of, on his other commentaries, which have been first-rate.
And that was Hillel Goldblum doing uh, some of the verse from Exodus 23, verse 20, uh, and uh, the Wayfarer's Prayer. Okay, this has been podcast number two in the latest series of six weekly podcasts of Phantom Nation, the title as well of a book of the same name, sponsored by Floridians for Israel Institute at gmail.com. More than one reader has called it the best book ever on the war against Israel by Islam, currently camouflaged as the putatively primeval Palestinian people about whom there is nothing Palestinian. Others have called it a literary masterpiece. For those who appreciate these podcasts, there are three others for subscribers, each one costing a whopping $1.25. If so, go to www.phantom-nation.com. I'll be back next Wednesday, God willing, for the third podcast in this series. Until then, have a good week. I'm Shai Bentakoa. <laughs>